0: So welcome to uh, this talk in our series on James. Um, Good to have you with us um, as we are now in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. That's the section we're going to look at um, in today's talk entitled (coughs) Faith into Action, the Doctrine of Salvation. So for anyone who's not been listening into this series, uh, we're now going through the whole book of James Uh, And as Terry has said, we're going to be reading every passage, commenting on every passage in the whole book. It's a wonderful book, very exciting, lots of themes put together by James. Remember, it's a circular letter written to be sent to different church communities. It's not aimed at any one person or one group or one church in particular. And as we noted earlier on in the series, James, uh, an apostle based in Jerusalem, is writing to messianic jews uh, jews who follow jesus christ who've been dispersed probably by persecution um, into different parts of the roman empire people he's in touch with people he's concerned about who are forming church communities in other parts um, of the roman empire outside uh, israel and judea so there are many topics that james uh, addresses and we've we've already looked at some of them, um, and we'll see some more coming up. But this particular topic is of immense interest and has in fact caused quite a lot, quite a stir in the theological world, um, because he makes some very very strong statements about the nature of faith and practical faith. Uh, it seems to be that behind James's um, Uh, words in this passage, which we'll read in just a moment. Um, He's concerned about something which we call nominalism. By nominalism, we mean somebody who professes Christian faith or religious faith, but only in name, not in reality, not from their heart um, and not worked out in their lives. And it appears that James was aware that in some churches there were people sitting in those church communities, apparently parts of those communities, who weren't really participating fully in the life of the community and not showing signs of an active and living faith. He's probably writing... Fifteen or twenty years after these groups had been formed, if if they formed out of um, Jews dispersed from Jerusalem in Act, for, in the story as in the story in Acts seven and Acts eight, which we referred to in an earlier talk, so a, a period of time has elapsed. If we imagine it to be fifteen or twenty years, this is enough time for the initial enthusiasm of the first converts to be mixed together with some. Less clear cut definitions of faith uh, in the people participating in the church community. And so a problem arises, which we're very familiar with in the modern world, of nominalism, people who are in the church in name only. So just before we get to the text, just to ask ourselves a couple of questions here. First of all, um, how does nominalism? take root in the church? How does the church become filled with people who are in name Christians only, but they're not actually living out their faith? There are a number of, of reasons for this that are quite common. One is that first generation believers are often very ardent and firm in their faith. Second generation believers might have inherited faith, but not have made it personal to themselves. So that's an issue that was beginning to happen and perhaps secondly there might be an overreaction to all the legalism and rules of Judaism that they'd come out of, some of these Jewish uh, believers, many of them would have been Jewish in these communities and when you're overreacting against lots of laws and regulations you tend to move in the other direction and take a very very laid back attitude a very easy going attitude to faith now let me give you a A modern example of this, Um, one of my favourite theologians is Dietrich Bonhoeffer from Germany, who in the 20s and 30s was a very prominent theologian uh, and leader in the German Lutheran Church. And he led the charge, if you like, or led the response of people in the Lutheran Church against the rise of Hitler and the Nazi movement from uh, the early 1930s through onwards. And he was very concerned, even before the time of Hitler coming to power, that the Lutheran Church had become rather nominal. Lots of people sitting in church there in Germany. It was a state church, a bit like the Church of England in, um, in England and Wales. And uh, and yet, was their faith genuine? And he coined an expression that's gone into our language, our theological language, cheap grace. He's concerned about cheap grace and he writes in The Cost of Discipleship, an early book, um, the following statement. Let me just read this to you. It's just a, a comment on the problem of nominalism. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession, Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, great grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. But costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy that which the merchant will sell, uh, to, and he'll sell all his goods to buy. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him, stirring words from another era. But these sort of words created a whole movement called the Confessing Church, which said we're not going to allow Nazi values to come into the church. They had bought into costly grace. They were... Accepting the grace of God, understanding that it would naturally lead to discipleship, to the giving over of your personal freedoms for the sake of god's purposes, so we're going to turn in a moment to the passage uh, in James, but I want to just say one more thing as of, by way of introduction the The apparent contrast to James's words comes from Paul the Apostle. And Paul in many places says very, very clearly that a person can be justified only by faith and not by the works that they do. For example, Romans 3, 28. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul taught a gospel of justification by faith alone. You couldn't do anything to earn your salvation. Now, when you set that against what I'm about to read now, you'll see there's a kind of creative tension there, which we have to understand and work out. So let's just read the text. James If it is not accompanied by action, it's dead. But someone will say, I have faith. Sorry, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not just by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodgings to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now you can easily see what a provocative passage this is verse 14 what good is it my brothers if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds can such faith save them there is the issue of nominalism articulated just in a pithy sentence and I think it's fair to say in the 21st century church here in the West and for example in Britain in the United Kingdom we face a crisis of nominalism. Churches are declining by and large and they're declining most where the Christian gospel is not presented in a robust and clear-cut way. Where grace is cheap, churches decline, ironically, and James in the first century was very concerned about this issue. Now, in order to work out what he means and try to understand the um, statements made here in this passage, I want to to look at the four characters that James portrays. He gives four different examples of people's um, outworkings of their faith or otherwise, The first two are examples of nominalism uh, between verses uh, 15 and 19 of chapter 2. And then there are two examples of true and living faith. And I think we'll only be able to work out what James means once we've thought about these four examples. So let's start with the first one, which I would describe as the armchair Christian or the armchair religious expert. Who, for example, verse 15, suppose a brother or sister who is without clothes and daily food. And if one of you says to them, oh, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? What good is it? So this armchair Christian, who is this type of person? I had a conversation with a friend uh, not so so long ago who has uh, very good experiences of churches and is aware of lots of different churches, pops in on churches from time to time, and often challenges me with, well, I think the church should do this, and why doesn't the church do that, and why don't people do this? Here are things that need to be done in community. Here are needs that uh, that, that should be met. And when I uh, said to this person, um, once I answered all their comments by saying, well, What are you doing about these things? The person said most emphatically, well, I'm just here to comment, not to do. And they meant it. It was a sincere statement. They felt they were justified in commenting on what should be done but not actually doing anything. They were passive, occasional pew warmers in churches but not active. An armchair Christian and not so far away from that person in their culture and thinking as someone else I know who's not who wouldn't profess to be a Christian at all but who's a who's a, a good person who practices Buddhism but believes that Buddhism and Christianity are very very close together and who believes in Jesus and if he went to a particular church and people said what do you believe in he'd probably say I believe in Jesus you know he's one with the Buddha it's the same way etc etc But this is another kind of armchair Christian where the faith is nominal and the engagement with Christian discipleship is not at all evident. I think of someone I knew decades ago, I used to work with, who I would describe as a cultural believer. This older lady um, often spoke to me about religious issues in the workplace. She had a religious sentiment She even got very emotional listening to hymns on the radio. She loved the atmosphere of going into church buildings and weddings and churchy type things really moved her. Um, I remember her um, becoming very moved um, at a wedding portrayed uh, on, on television with all the Church of England finery. And this person certainly believes in God. But it's like a cultural belief. They're not connected to the Christian community, not outworking faith in any meaningful way that you can tell. So James is concerned about the armchair Christian, the someone who loosely affirms some kind of a faith, but who is not working out that faith in any way. And this is his challenge. Such people have nominal faith only. He pushes his argument a little bit further and quite shockingly um, says, um, you believe there's one God, he's saying this rather kind of uh, rhetorically, he's not aiming this at any particular one person because it's a general letter, you believe there's only one God, good, even the demons believe that and shudder. So there are even the forces of evil, inverted commas, believe in God. And this is in fact evident from the kind of statements that are made by demonic forces operating through people when confronted by Jesus. I wonder whether you've made an observation um, about this when reading the Gospels for example when Jesus in mark 5 encountered one of the two uh, demon infested men when he crossed over the the lake to the other side of the Lake of Galilee and um, One of the men saw Jesus from a distance, according to Mark 5, verse 6, ran and fell fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, and notice what he said, what the man actually said. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. So the evil force within him that had temporarily infested this man was, as it were, speaking its mind through his voice and, interestingly, affirming the status of Jesus whilst resisting his authority. Now, if demonic forces can do that, so can hardened, sinful humans who can believe in the existence of God very firmly but be absolutely sure that they don't want to submit to that God. They know it must be true that he created the world, or that Jesus died on the cross, or whatever it might be. But they are determined not to become his followers. So we have here two examples of nominalism: the armchair Christian, and uh, also secondly, a skeptic or an opponent of God, either a human or even a demonic one. These are these are this is nominal faith. You give the name of God, you give the name of Jesus Christ, but there is no obedience. There's no living faith. And James said this nominalism should not really be existing in the church unchallenged. Now he goes on. And more positively, in order to explain what he does mean by saying... You need faith and actions, faith and deeds. He gives a couple of examples, and these are very, very helpful to explain what sort of reality he's talking about. Because Paul, in his earlier statements that we read in Romans and elsewhere in his writings, places such as Galatians, is talking about the process of entering the kingdom of God, becoming a believer for the first time. And making it clear, you cannot have bring any of your own human merits into the equation of being put right with God. It's done through the merit of the work of Christ and by your faith in that work. You trust Christ for your salvation. Paul makes that point abundantly clear in order to... Um, defend his gospel against particularly Jewish legalism, which had a tradition and a mentality that good works were part of the ingredients of gaining acceptance by God. So Paul was looking at the initiation of faith, the beginning of faith, and describing um, when you come to, to living faith that the that you don't bring any merit involved in the process. Now, James is looking at the outworking in faith once that initial transaction between you and God has taken place. And he gives two examples. One is Abraham, who is in the whole of the Old Testament and arguably in the whole of the Bible, an epitome of faith. He is the forefather of faith, if ever there was one. And uh, in the verses that I read just a few minutes ago, um, James comes back to the story of Abraham. Now, we're going to look at two dimensions of the story of Abraham. Abraham's challenge, amongst other things, was that God promised him a son when he and his wife were infertile elderly and had never conceived children. And there was no prospect of them doing so. And in Genesis 15, in the wonderful defining moment of this uh, particular story, God leads Abraham to look into the sky and count the stars. And he says, you know, go and count the stars if you can count them. Bit of an ironic statement there. We all know how hard that is. And according to Genesis uh, 15, verse 4, then God said to him, So shall your offspring be. Your offspring will be multinumerous like the stars. And verse 6 is the key. Abraham believed the Lord, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Now that's a very interesting statement. So, Abraham at that moment, he put his trust in God. Or an impossible reality. That is the kind of circumstance that is like the epitome or the symbol of the, of the doctrine of justification by faith in the New Testament. And Paul discusses Abraham's example in Romans chapter four in some detail. However, when James comes to the story, he's looking at a later event in uh, Abraham's life, when Isaac has been born, Isaac is growing up, Isaac is probably a teenager, his son, the promised son, the one through whom his family, his nation and the future um, is going to uh, be taken forward. And he was asked in Genesis 22, which uh, James refers to in James 2 verse 21, Abraham considered um, Uh, Yeah, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? So he refers to the situation here where Abraham paradoxically and mysteriously is asked by God to sacrifice the very son that he's promised him. And as a teenager, he takes his son to a mountain, Mount Moriah, and prepares to enact a human sacrifice in direct obedience to the words God had given him. And then God intervenes at the last minute, having tested his faith and saves the boy's life. It's a very mysterious uh, series of events. But I think what the point that James is making is that faith is worked out in actions. You don't just initially say, oh, yes, I believe that. That's a great idea. You're actually putting your trust in. In God, entering into a relationship with him, which leads to obedient actions, which are the deeds that are the subject of James chapter two. The deeds. Faith without deeds is dead. It's the deeds of obedience and action following from obedience to God's command. So in Abraham's case, he initially believed that he'd have a son. But he was willing to follow through obedience to God even when he didn't understand the consequences of it, even though it looked as though it was going to end up into, in a tragic circumstance where God would have to give him another son. Um, even though it was costly to him, he had deeds, he had actions that followed his faith. So actions which follow faith. That's the theme that uh, James is trying to um, bring to us. And the writer to the Hebrews describes this very movingly, this very same incident which James is commenting on. So Hebrews 11 verse 17 says this, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring shall be reckoned. Verse 19, this is the key. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So Abraham's reasoning was, well, even if I sacrifice my son, he'd be raised up again. In other words, faith, faith, faith was intrinsic to his actions. He acted on faith, and you could see his actions working out in his life. So Abraham's a wonderful example of what James is trying to say. The second example is very interesting. Here's a person of great contrast to Abraham. Rahab. James 2, verse 25. 25. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodgings to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Now, let's just have a little think about this. What what on earth is going on in in this story? You'll probably remember the circumstance from the book of Joshua at the beginning. The people of Israel are just about to enter the promised land, crossing the Jordan. And in a few short kilometers distance from the River Jordan, first place they would come to would be the uh, defended and fortified city of Jericho. That was the previous circumstance. Rahab, a prostitute, so a woman of no social standing and no social significance in her own culture, according to the book of Joshua, had heard about Yahweh, the God of Israel and the Israelites and how they would conquered some other nations and how Yahweh was going to bring them into this land where she lived and into uh, even to her city. And mysteriously and miraculously, when she heard these rumors and these stories going around of this new people group who were coming into the area, she kind of suddenly believed that their God was the true God. She believed in Yahweh. We don't exactly know how that came about. That's a mysterious reality behind this. So when some Israelite spies come into the city of Jericho, they're just looking around the city trying to see um, how they might conquer the city. She, working out who they are, um, offers them lodging, tells them that she actually believes in their God, which was a real shock to them. She believes in Yahweh rather than all the gods of the Canaanites. And helps them to escape people who are looking for them in the city. And then as the story progresses, you probably remember, uh, they agree that the symbol of a a piece of red cloth was going to be very, very important, that she should put this red cloth um, in a prominent place in her property so that when the Israelites came to the city, they would protect her and her family, which is exactly what they did. So here's another interesting person. She was justified by faith. Notice that she had no merit to bring to her initial justification. She was a prostitute. She had no status. She had no religious background. She had no history with Judaism. She she really didn't know anything much apart from what she'd heard about Yahweh down the grapevine uh, of her people talking about what was going on. And yet she believed and she puts her faith into action. Now, she risked her life to protect the spies. Interesting point. And so here's another example of living faith exercised by uh, uh, this woman, Rahab. James's point is that living faith is exercised by All sorts of people, not just elite groups, not specially privileged people like Abraham, who had lots and lots of revelation of God over a period of time, but Rahab and others. And the writer to Hebrews says in Hebrews 11.31, By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient during the conquest of the city subsequently. So we now come to the end of James's argument. we've seen four different case histories or examples, two examples of nominal faith: the armchair Christian and the hardened opponent who you know they, they accept the existence of God, but they don't act on it in any meaningful way, certainly not obedience and Uh, submitting themselves to the will of God in any way. And then, on the contrary, two examples of true and living faith, two dramatic examples from the Old Testament. Two very different people who had the same faith and had the same willingness to put their faith into practice even though it could cost them a lot, which was true both of Abraham and Rahab in ways that I've just explained as we've gone through the stories. So we come to our conclusion. And in a sense, James's conclusion, painful though it is, for some people, is very simple. There are two types of faith. There's nominal faith and living faith. And we should never confuse the two. And living faith will always be demonstrated by actions that obviously arise out of that faith. You'll see the actions. Now, if you marry this together with Paul's teaching, although it looks a creative tension between the two of them, you'll find that there's a harmony there. If you remember what I said earlier on, which is that Paul describes the beginning of salvation, the moment you come into God's kingdom. And he says, at this point, it's justification by faith alone. You don't bring any merit, good works or any credit into the equation that eases your way into God's kingdom. You cannot earn your way in. Christ has paid the price for you. You come in by faith James, on the other hand, says, further along down the line, once we're looking at people who are professing Christianity, some of them are genuine, they have a living faith and you'll see it by their actions, but some people are only nominal and he challenges nominal faith. This is an uncomfortable subject in the modern Western church where the tendency has been to make Christianity easy, to make it cheap, to make it accessible, to make it about the amazing love of God, but not to tell us about the justice of God, to perhaps disguise the significance, accidentally, no doubt, of the atonement of Christ, the enormous price paid for sin, and perhaps to modify the cost of following Christ. Now James wants to prevent these tendencies developing in the first century church and so his voice speaks across the centuries into the 21st century and asks us the question, are we living um, a life of living and obedient faith or are there... In the churches of today. Nominal believers only. And his challenge to a nominal believer would be to turn that nominal faith into a real living faith. By embracing costly grace. And giving our lives wholeheartedly for Christ. It's an important message. It's a prophetic message. It was a message Important in the first century and almost by definition important in any context in the church. And one which should shape our understanding of the gospel. Our aspiration should be like Abraham, is to be like Abraham and Rahab. People who turn their faith into discipleship, into action, into the lifestyle of committed believers. And that's what I trust we'll do even more as a result of uh, thinking about this provocative and challenging text that we've been studying today in James. Thank you for listening.